Hi, everyone. Welcome to Someone Else's Shoes. Tonight's shoes are worn by Dr. Leah Pernicaro Blair. Leah received her doctorate in clinical psychology from William James College, has over 10 years in the field, and is currently in private practice. And let's not forget, she is also my fifth grade crush and the Mary to my Joseph in the fifth grade Christmas show. Welcome, Leah. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been a very long time since Leah Le and I haven't actually, I think, seen grade. each other in person <laughs> since fifth grade. Fifth grade. Um, yeah. This is the first... It's a long time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the first phone call, like this is the first time we've spoken to each other outside yeah. of a texting conversation since the fifth grade since if you don't if you don't count the prep phone call that we had like a couple days ago yeah no it's a long so, time we um, were what 11 how old are you in the fifth grade 11 uh, 12 no less than that like no, 10 right you're younger you, tenor you turn tenor. you turn this is how i've always done it because i can't do math even though i have Me an accounting either. degree so whatever <laughs> yeah, i don't um I don't. you turn six in first grade so seven in second eight in third Nine and fourth, ten in fifth. Ten. Okay, you yeah. Turn so, ten. I turned yeah. ten in fifth grade. Yeah. So the last time I probably saw you was when the entire class went to the Yankees game before the end of the year. Yeah. Do you remember that? I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember you that just, at all. You just remember yeah. that activity. Yeah. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, that's I. All I remember is you sitting there with a with a little baby Jesus in your arms, fake doll. That was that was my the doll I had when I was like a child. You brought that doll. They didn't supply the doll. No, that was mine. <laughs> I took my role as Mary very seriously. Jesus Christ! Sorry, that's it was an ironic. honor in Catholic uh, school. That was the highest honor. I know. Okay, so we're like a minute into this, and we've already gone off the rails. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, God, this is great. Anywho, so yes, Lee and I have, Lee and I have known each other since we were six. Yeah. But haven't spoken in, what, For 32 20 years? years? <laughs> 22 years? Minor details. Yeah, just small. Anywho, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Um, so let's start off with just a little bit more about what you do. Um, okay. And, and starting with, you know, your specialties and the, the mm -hmm. types of people or groups of people that you work with. Yeah. Okay. So my specialty is trauma. Um, that, the way I like to think of it, is sort of the big umbrella. And underneath that are a myriad of other um, mental health issues that I, I work with. But I feel like a lot of my training centered around trauma. And when you have, as a psychologist, a good understanding of trauma treatment and trauma care, it makes it a lot easier to deal with many other mental health issues because most people at some point in their life deal with some kind of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, right now, my practice is probably filled, no surprise, with mostly women than men, although I have a couple of brave men who decided to join therapy. Um, 
usually under the age of 40, so between um, 16 and 40 is sort of the range. Um, and a lot of the things I'm working with people on are around anxiety. So some of it might be what we call like the worried well. So it might be a uh, high schooler or a college student who's struggling with just transitions and navigating life. Um, people with depression, bipolar disorder, as well as people who are struggling with domestic violence, sexual assault, um, or some other type of traumatic event or childhood trauma that they're looking to to work through and heal from. Okay. Um, and is that statistically, like, you, the amount of patients that you have being mm-hmm. women opposed to men, that's, that's statistically accurate, if you will, or a representation of the overall? Yeah, I mean... Because yeah, I feel like I mean, it's not, as far as trauma goes, is is it really that weighted? No. I mean, I think people in general can experience trauma. And I think trauma, I think when we think about it, we're prone to think about war or rape or domestic violence, something like that. But trauma can encompass a whole host of other things, you know, loss of a child, death of a loved one, severe car accidents, severe health issues. So anyone can experience trauma. Um, the definition of trauma, what needs to be present is for something, for there to be real or perceived threat and for there to, it to be shocking and unexpected, right? So it can, it can fit a broad array of things, even though we don't always think about it as such. Mm -hmm. But research has shown time and time again that more women are likely to seek out therapy as opposed to men. Men will use many other different types of coping strategies before they go to therapy if they get there at all. Okay. Um, So let's start off with the same thing that's everyone's had to deal with for the past Mm -hmm. year plus, right? COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So A, how are you doing mentally with Mm -hmm. a year long quarantine? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Pretty good, actually. I mean, you Um, just, you just got married. Yeah, we missed, we missed the, the, the issue. We got married in, um, 2019 I had to think about it for a second um in October so we were a couple of months before COVID hit right so we lucked out and we were living in a small apartment in the city in Boston um but luckily like had closed on a condo that had a lot more space a big backyard a month before the shutdown happened so we lucked out I mean I think overall my life has been impacted by COVID in very, very small ways. And I recognize that there's a lot of privilege in that, right? Like I have a yeah. job that allows me to, to continue to work. Same with my husband. I've been doing therapy either by phone call or telehealth this entire time. Um, no one I know has gotten COVID and died from it or had severe symptoms. Everyone's either been asymptomatic or hasn't gotten it. So there's privilege in the fact that my life hasn't really been impacted. Yeah. Um, so I'm okay. I mean, we got a COVID dog. You know, life has, 
life amidst this pandemic, amidst the chaos of everything that's been happening has been pretty good. Like I've had a lot of really beautiful moments amidst the pandemic. Yeah. But it's, I also recognize, you know, even with the people I see and in this field that it's been really difficult and really traumatic for a lot of people. Yeah. And that was, so you actually answered my next question, which was how have you been able to keep working with your patients, right? Because you're in a quarantine. They can't come to you or your office or anything like that. So, so you've been doing telehealth Mm -hmm. or just phone calls or, or whatever the case may be. Um, are you starting to see people again in person or are you still strictly telehealth? Still strictly telehealth. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One, I have a number of clients who either have their own autoimmune conditions or have family members that they're living with that are higher risk. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a matter of, am I going to be safe? And is my client going to be safe? But what about all of the people that they then interact with? I feel like that's the responsibility that I have to keep keep in mind. Um, But also for my own safety, I have my own autoimmune condition. So for me, I'd rather be as safe as possible. I'm starting to consider seeing people in person and trying to figure out how am I going to do that and navigate that, especially with people getting vaccinated. That's That's starting to feel more like a possibility. I'm anxious to get back into seeing people in person because I think even though you can have really amazing sessions and you can do some really meaningful work virtually, it's still not the same as having someone sitting across from you. Yeah. I didn't know you had an autoimmune uh, issue. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to call it a disease if it's not a disease, but... Um, it's, I guess it's a, I have, um, Hashimoto's, which is where your autoimmune, your, um, immune system attacks your thyroid mm-hmm. and psoriasis and the combination, not ideal. It's well-managed, but yeah. not so, and I also have asthma. So like putting me <laughs> out into the world with COVID just isn't. Doesn't make not sense. Something I, yeah. Not something I really want to do. See, this is what happens when you don't talk to somebody for 22 years. These are the things yeah, you, you don't learn know all about. these. Yeah. yeah, you learn all these things. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to deep dive into each other's lives for the rest of this podcast. Right. Where I'm throwing all the other questions out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so have you, with your patients, they're, they're mm-hmm. primarily, and or almost all of them have experienced some form of trauma. Yeah. So how have it's I don't know I want I want to phrase this question the right way because any answer could speak to you either as a very good or a very bad psychologist. How have they well, been we'll managing <laughs> during this quarantine, right? So like how have you been helping them, I should say, through yeah. this? Because if they're yeah. dealing with trauma mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden on top of the trauma that they're trying to deal with or cope with mm-hmm. or get help for now all of a sudden the person they're seeking this help from can't see them in person like it takes away maybe Mm -hmm. some of that comfort that you get of sitting one-on-one with somebody so how have they been doing primarily um so 
there's there's a lot there, so I'll, I'll try to break it down. So I think overall, what is important to say, and I think something that keeps me in this field is that we are naturally like, unbelievably resilient. Like, the human capacity for resilience is truly amazing. Um, so even though I'm working with people who are already dealing with trauma and then COVID hit, people are finding a way to survive. I would say not a lot of people are thriving right now, but people are certainly surviving. I think with COVID, what the entire country and frankly, the entire world is experiencing is this collective trauma, right? There's this hypervigilance that's completely taken over our way of living. Whereas the social norms before COVID used to be, you know, go out, go here, go there, do this, be with this person, be with that person. Right. During COVID, the social norm has become stay away and you're not safe, right? That's the messaging we've received. Regardless of what your beliefs are about it, the messaging we're receiving is you're not safe, stay home, stay away. And what that does is it creates this significant level of hypervigilance, which is a symptom of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And when you're living a life where every day you have to question, am I okay? Am I safe? It's going to have an impact, regardless of whether or not you right. have your own trauma history, right? Something... I've heard a lot of from my clients and from other clinicians who have heard this from their clients that people who are struggling with anxiety, engaging with other people who may not have had an encounter with an anxiety disorder in the past, people are sort of sitting back who have struggled with anxiety saying like, now you all know what it's like living in my world yeah. every single day. Um, so interestingly enough, some of my clients when all of this has happened, took one approach, which was, I know I already struggle with X, Y, and Z mental health condition, whether it's anxiety, depression, or something else. The coping skills that I use to help me navigate those issues, I can apply to COVID. And that's helped people, again, survive the circumstance, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and also recognize that we're not in a situation where we're going to be thriving. I think some people are, but many people are not. Right, for the most part, no. Yeah. And the other thing is a lot of people who are already struggling with trauma and in a place of wanting to heal, work through, navigate that, some of that has just gone to the back burner, right? When you're going through a collective traumatic experience, which is what has been happening over the past year plus when you're actively going through something like this you're not in a place where you can really process it and process it in a way that allows you to move on from it you can't move on from something when it's still actively happening to right. you so what that ends up meaning is a lot of the initial goals that people came into therapy with or things they wanted to work through sort of took a back seat because it became about how do I navigate this pandemic, this situation? How do I bunker down and take care of myself and my family? So the focus for the past year has really been how do, how do we survive 
and how do we engage in coping strategies, day-to-day activities that are going to allow us to feel like we can make it to just the next day. And as people have acclimated, you know, as the years moved on and people are starting to get vaccinated, now people are starting to feel more capable and able to start going to the issues that brought them to therapy in the first place. Right. Do you think that that, for those people in particular, do you think this may have been somewhat of a blessing in disguise in the sense of for the last year, right? The the trauma that brought them to you has kind of had to be put on the back burner, right? Mm-hmm. So now they're dealing every day, they're dealing with focusing on how do I deal with this? How do I deal with what's happening in front of me every day right now? And yeah. the fact that they've been able to do it is that something that might boost them a little bit towards being able to deal with the, the original trauma? Mm-hmm. Yes. The initial answer is yes and. <laughs> um, so the yes part is many of the clients that I see are pretty high functioning um, or are are significantly privileged. Um, I take some insurance, but not all, and some people are private pay. So a lot of the people that I'm seeing have also been able to work through this entire pandemic and also have significant resources that they're able to tap into. The question for them became whether or not they were going to utilize them. So for the people who had the resources and for the people who were able to give themselves the time and the space to see that when they use their coping skills, when they do the work, that they can tolerate, they can survive, they can maybe eventually reach a point of thriving. It it does become um, an opportunity to recognize resilience. So yes, I do. I think there are probably a lot of the and part is I think there are probably a lot of other people who have been much more significantly impacted by COVID that they that would not apply to them, right? Like right now what's happening in the mental health field is if you don't have good insurance or if you are under the age of 18, it's almost impossible to find care. I mean, the mental health field is completely saturated. We have so many mental health professionals, but the way the system works, it doesn't make it easy for everyone to have equal access to care, right? So the people who are getting the access to care, yes, I think are recognizing their strength and their resilience amidst this crisis. But I think there are also so many people who don't have access. And for them, this experience I'm assuming has probably felt like unbelievably more traumatic and potentially isolating. Yeah. Well, and that actually, that's a perfect bridge to the next part of my question. Um, so let's take a look. I have, where are we here? I found a couple, I have a couple of articles that I've been looking at. Um, mm-hmm. One of which is um, Boston University School of Public Health. Okay. Right, conducted a study, and essentially, in a very small nutshell, 
Uh, nine mm-hmm. out of ten professors say the mental health of their students has worsened during the pandemic. Yeah. So students are under 18 or just barely over 18 in college, mm-hmm. um, may not either have the access or may not know about the access, right? Like I didn't know when I went to college and I started having panic attacks that literally were debilitating. Like I, I, I got sent yeah. home, right? The first college I ever went to, I was sent home and said, college yeah. isn't for you, buddy. Yeah. I didn't even know that there was a, a psychologist on staff Yeah. until I had to go see her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's that. There's also this um, pandemic paradox where this is a McMaster University. The, the pandemic has created a paradox where mental health has become both a motivator and a barrier to physical activity. So people are like they, they want to be active because it increases mental health. Mm-hmm. But their mental health prohibits them from being from active. Mm-hmm. And... You know, so th- that speaks to kind of what you're saying, right? These people that are isolated, these people that are potentially um, unable to to get help or don't know that mm-hmm. they can get help, right? Mm-hmm. But along those lines, so those two things, right, those two studies are essentially saying, you know, this sucks for a lot of people and people with underlying mental health issues it sucks for even more mm-hmm. so then why has the suicide rate dropped yeah right so um i think it was six percent the suicide rate yeah six percent in the last year the largest decline in four decades mm-hmm. so that's uh per the associated press mm-hmm. so how can you speak to that? Can you speak to the correlation of, mm-hmm. is it just um, like, is it just because like apps like Talkspace exist now and it's, it's maybe a little easier to get somebody to, 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 to at least text with, or is there mm-hmm. something else because I'm a lay person and have no idea about mm-hmm. anything that transpires in your field? Yeah. So I, I can, I'll tell you what I think is going on before I do though. I'll say this. I don't want to undermine things like talk space, better help. There are so many apps now that people can use to track their mood, to help with deep breathing meditation Mm -hmm. that I think are unbelievably beneficial. And without the statistics in front of me, which I don't have, I'm, I'm guessing have probably within the past year been utilized significantly more than maybe have been in the past. Mm -hmm. So I do think maybe there has been some increase in people seeking out self-help in some way, right through these apps or, or seeking therapy. Right. But I think what I would pin as the main reason for the suicide rate is that oftentimes what you see happen we saw this during world war ii we saw this during 9-11 and i think we're also seeing this now is that 
when there is a collective trauma, when there isn't a collective experience with World War II, it was, was the war, with 9-11, right. it was the bombing. What you saw happen during both of those times was that you saw suicide rates go down, you saw inpatient hospitalizations go down, you saw suicide attempts go down. And one of the reasons why we think that happened is because what you also saw, and, and well, let me say this first. That's not saying that people aren't suffering, right? right. Just because you're seeing right. a decline in suicide rates or suicide attempts or hospitalizations doesn't necessarily mean that people aren't suffering. But what we also saw during 9-11 and during World War II was that there was this inherent belief that I'm not alone. There was this inherent belief that we, there, we as a collective, we are in this together. Think about like we were in high school when 9-11 happened, right? Yeah, freshman. There was this, yeah, there was this collective feeling of like we are in this together, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the case with COVID. What we all knew through this past year plus was that I'm not the only one going through this literally everyone else in the entire world is also experiencing that. And what that does is create this sense of, like, I have a tribe, mm -hmm. even if it's not a tribe I'm connected to. Um, Sebastian Younger is a anthropologist and journalist who's wrote a number of books. He wrote um, War, which was about um, the war in Afghanistan, which became a documentary called Restrepo. And he also wrote a book called Tribe, um, which I highly recommend. And it essentially talks about this, that the one of the ways in which we mediate mental health crises is by helping people feel connected. And when we inherently feel connected to other people or connected to a, a larger community, our mental health issues decrease because we realize we're not alone. We realize we're not isolated. Right. Mental health gets worse the more isolated we are. So although during the pandemic we were isolated because we were in lockdown, there was this collective recognition that so was everyone else. We weren't alone. Oftentimes when people are contemplating suicide, part of the issue is, is there's this belief that I'm alone and it's never going to get better. And the people in my life would be better off if I, if I weren't around, right? Suicide becomes a way out of pain, a way out of suffering, because no other options seem viable or available. That viewpoint, even if it's still present, I think can be put off in real in the recognition that you're not alone in it anymore right what makes it easier for someone to take that step towards a suicide attempt is the belief that i'm alone and there's no one else i can go to so i think the real reason why the suicide rates are going down is because for the past year there's been this realization that everyone else is going through this together yeah. Even if we don't feel together or feel connected, we know that it's a shared experience with the entire world, as opposed to yeah. just like a sect. Right? Because even nine yeah. eleven was just the U.S. Really, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and you know, 
although it affected the entire United States, it was really centralized in New York City. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is this is everybody. That makes a lot of sense, and I yeah. I never really thought of it that way. Yeah, and if you take it, if you look at it in a different way, right? We see there's so much research that's done that's shown being a part of a community enhances well-being, enhances quality of life. People who are married live longer than people who are not. People who are part of a religious organization, older adults who have connection to community and are socialized live longer than adults who, older adults who are isolated, right? As human beings, I'm going to need that in writing because I have a few people that I need to share that one with. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I mean, that's a whole other podcast, right? Is like the way we treat older adults in this country. But we, as human beings, are meant to be in connection with others. Yeah. And when we are not, we are significantly impacted by that, right? So, and again, that connection to other is best when it's felt and it's real and it's tangible and we can hold on to it. But when you can't have that because of a pandemic, just the perceived collective is enough. Yeah, that's, yeah, wow. Because that was the one thing that baffled the crap out of me was we're looking at like this is one of the most depressing times. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most depressing times globally that I can think of ever. Yeah, that's happened in our lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then so you think about it, it's like everybody's miserable. So the people who are already depressed and already miserable, wouldn't they just be more miserable? But that's yeah, it's it's interesting that like even if it's subconscious mm-hmm. that that could play such a huge role in everything. Yeah. yeah. And again, I think people are miserable, right? And <laughs> in no way am I trying to undermine right. how miserable and how much suffering people are going through, yeah. right? Like that is real and it's happening. I mean look at what's happening in India, right? Like oh, yeah. there's true suffering happening. Um, and I think people can take some solace in knowing that they're not alone in their suffering and that ma- that matters. Yeah. Sometimes I think that becomes the defining feature as to whether or not someone feels like they can keep going or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so shooting off of that, and pardon the pun, that was actually mm-hmm. a, a not supposed to be a joke. Um, it was just a poor choice of words. Um, I wanted to talk about mass shootings mm-hmm. and how, so we just talked about people that are depressed. They have mental issue, mental health issues that they're dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah. Now a pandemic happens. Mm-hmm. Now you're quarantined. Mm-hmm. And although you may still be suffering, although you may still have these issues, yeah. ultimately this this feeling of of cohesiveness mm-hmm. has helped in whatever small way it has yeah. to prevent 6% of people that might have killed themselves from killing themselves. Yeah. Now fast forward now we're in March. 
end of March, right? Mm -hmm. The lockdown is lifting. And all of a sudden in America, we are experiencing, um, I can only describe it as a mass shooting season. Yeah. Right. I mean, figuratively speaking, Mm -hmm. Right. So lockdown ends and all these people that were locked up are all of a sudden just coming out and shooting people. I mean, it, yeah. and and I think let me see if I have it. Um, there have been so many that I I can't even keep track right. of it anymore. So the definition awful. of mass shooting. Right there. So according to the FBI, there's no widely accepted definition of the term mm -hmm. mass shooting. But the mm -hmm. United States FBI follows the Investigative Assistance for Violent Crimes Act of 2012 in defining an active shooter incident and mass killings. Um, so based on this, it's generally agreed that mass shootings is whenever three or more people are shot, injured or killed. Mm. not including the shooters. Yeah. Okay. And in 2021 alone, starting January 1st, there are over 175 in the United States. That is so heartbreaking. And I mean, just since March, let's, let's call it the end of March. I'm going to say March 31st. Yeah. Right. And I'm just going to scroll up, and it contains 63 mass shootings. And that's that's not just – and so because I don't want to seem naive, right? Like any mm – -hmm. I feel like anyone who would go out and commit this type of crime, right, go out and just start shooting people whether motivated or unmotivated, there is some mental health issue. But it's not necessarily I'm schizophrenic hearing voices and they told me to shoot people. It, but you have to have some kind of mental issue to go out and just take a life. I mean, yeah. I, I have a lot of feelings about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the mental health issue I would label it is a significant lack of empathy. Well, and and that's my point, right? So because a lot of these can be related to whether it's gang violence or whatever the case may be, right? If there's, if mm -hmm. there's a gang incident in the streets of Chicago um, where three or more people other than the shooter are shot, injured and or killed, that qualifies as a mass shooting, right? Right, But it also qualifies as a complete lack of empathy, right? Because how many times have you heard the stray bullet goes through the window and kills the six-year-old girl in her home? Mm -hmm. So, but then, then we come to these active shooter incidents mm -hmm. where someone gets fired and goes and... and seeks retribution with an AR-15 or somebody ends up in a grocery store in Colorado and starts trying to shoot people. You know what I mean? Like there's just countless, I, I can't even, the, 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 what hurts me the most is that I can't think of just one to talk about because no. there are so many. I know. 
And you know what I mean? Like I'm searching for examples as we have this conversation. And there are so many that I can't just give you a specific. Which one do you pick? Right. Yeah. Which one do I use yeah. in this particular situation? And yeah. and that's what really hurts. Like at an, in a in a interior, of, like just me, like hurts my heart. Yeah. That that's the world we live in as a country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, politics aside for now, for yeah. the moment, because yeah. I do want to get your take on a couple of things without diving too deep into politics themselves. Yeah. But before yeah. we go there, um, can you speak to that? This right? Did did, did quarantine during COVID? Do you feel that it may have um, played a role in the frequency of the shootings once quarantine lifted? Like mm-hmm. people staying home, not seeking help, right? Like, is it, can you, because, or not taking their medication or, or like, because, you know, there were all these things about like, because it's quarantine and the postal service is backed up and, and people that would normally get their medications can't get their medications. And like, is that really the underlying issue or is it just now that I can leave my house, I was going to do this either way, but it's yeah. just because now we're all getting out of our houses at the same time. They just mm-hmm. happen to be coming one right after the other. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a couple of things with that. I, it's hard to answer that straightforward. So I think I'm just going to go and I think I'll, I'll, I think I'll get there. Okay. So, I mean, there's no time limit on the podcast. So just I know, go next. I know. So let's, let's start. There's a with, lot to unpack. Yeah. Let's start with the view of mental health in relationship to these mass shootings. And when I say mass shootings, I, I'm glad that you said the definition. I think that's so important. But I'm really talking about um, the mass shootings that you're seeing at the Postal Service right. or like someone the, walking the, into, insur- into a church. The right? isolated incidents in which the person may have a manifesto or a yes. score to settle or yes, something yes. along the line. It's not just like yes, there was a drive-by and five people got yes, killed. We're, right. yeah, we're excluding those because right. I think that's a whole other podcast. Totally different thing that's a completely different thing where we have to take into account like systemic racism and privilege and just a whole host of other things. So if we, if we operate in this bubble for a moment, I think we have an issue right off the bat where there seems to be a dialogue around these mass shootings and mental health that I don't actually think is healthy and I think unfortunately may perpetuate stigma around mental health that prohibits people from getting the help they need. And the reason I say that is because if if you go back and you look at the language the media is using, politicians are using, you know, law enforcement is using around these mass shootings, you'll often see mental health language be used. So you'll see things like this person must have clear mental health issues and is evil. Like 
you'll start to see language around this person was bad, evil, insane, deranged, bad, and mentally ill. And what that does is it creates this dynamic that people who are struggling with mental health conditions are also somehow going to be the same people who walk into a Walmart and shoot it up. But in reality, people who struggle with severe mental health conditions are significantly more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. And people who have severe mental health conditions, schizophrenia, bipolar, like severe depression, whatever it may be, they are at a higher likelihood of being victims and at an even higher likelihood of being victimized again. Um, they're not the people who have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia are not often the people committing mass shootings. Yeah, and, and oftentimes, I know we're talking about media later, but whenever you watch television or a movie now and they depict someone with mental health conditions, they're often like killing somebody mm -hmm. or, or they have multiple personality disorders or this or that. And they're, right. they're violent in some way. But yes, people who have, for example, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder can have psychosis, which can lead to paranoid um paranoia or um, some kind of hallucinations at times or this fear that someone else is going to hurt me or someone's out to get me, which can cause a very small percentage of people to act out. But the reason why they're acting out is because they actively in that moment through their paranoia and the psychosis are feeling like they're being attacked or injured. Right. And they're not, they're not committing mass shootings. It's like they're, trashing their apartment or they're yelling in the middle of the street to people to get away or right. you know they're they're the way in which they're being violent is to keep people at bay and it's often not with a gun right mm -hmm. so i think on one hand there's this issue where we're muddying the waters around mental health and these mass shootings and i think it's creating the stigma that the people who commit mass shootings are struggling with some kind of mental health and we're using it as a platform to increase the need for mental health services. Now, while I think we need significantly more mental health services throughout this entire country, there's a significant issue with the way the mental health system works. I don't know that it's really helpful to use the language we're using around mass shootings and mental health. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I think broadly the most dangerous person in our country right now is an uneducated, bored, lonely white man. That's 92% of the people who've committed mass shootings right. are There's, white men. It's, it's profiling is a thing and that is the profile yeah i mean when you when you look at the statistics of mass shootings right you have 30 percent of mass shootings had the the individual who committed the mass shooting was labeled as antisocial right you had i think 32 percent were diagnosed with some other mental health condition 
you had 50, I think 51 or, you know, a little over 50% identified as white. 54% had some sort of financial issue or instability. Um, and then you had 92% were male or just young men under the, and 68% were under the age of 35. So the biggest factor for mass shootings are a white male is under the age of 35. And, right. And I feel like anytime one of those mass shootings, right. Cause like we said, we're, we're differentiating between the broad spectrum definition of a mass shooting and mm -hmm. these more isolated incidents of a deeper underlying issue, whether it's, you know, like the Aurora from years ago, right? The the one that happened yeah. during the Batman movie theater thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um and and I feel like every time you turn on the news when one of these is happening and you get people who knew the the shooter. Yeah. I feel like generally it's always he was quiet, he was a loner, kept to himself. Um you know, and, and maybe some people are just like, we don't really want to say bad things because we don't want to be those people. So it's it's mm -hmm. like a generalized thing. I don't remember anyone ever coming out and being like, that motherfucker was crazy. Right. Right. Like there, it's always just like, yeah, he always just kind of kept to himself. He doesn't really talk to anybody. He might have been bullied, yeah. picked on or whatever the case may be. But all in all, he really just, you know, had no friends kept to himself mm -hmm. didn't yeah he? yeah no you're right and and i think here's the thing right like i was bullied right like how many people were bullied a lot. how many people right and they're not out committing mass right. shootings especially by and today's I, definition of bullying because i feel like the definition right. of bullying has changed drastically through the last three generations say mm -hmm. right like the gener our our parents yeah. Bullying was like getting your head stuffed in a toilet, getting thrown into a locker and locked into a locker for a day, getting beat up, getting your lunch money taken, whatever. Mm -hmm. Our generation, I, I feel like, was the beginning of um, a broader spectrum of bullying, right? So just like words, like understanding that simply words – can have a drastic effect on you. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the current generation, if you will, the generation that's, I guess, you know, what, Gen, what is it? We're millennials, so Gen Y, Gen yeah. Z. Yeah. Uh, whatever it is. I should know, I should know that. I know. The, 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 the gonna, generations go with, yeah. after millennials um, <laughs> yeah. was, and, and the tail end of millennials and then the, the following generations is where, cyberbullying yeah kind of became a thing where it was just like yeah. an an extension of words can mm -hmm. hurt mm -hmm. and and I mean we'll get into to cyberbullying and stuff a little bit later as well when we talk about the other topics that we have but it's like those these things these the the bullying I feel like and that's that's what doesn't make any sense to me is right. Like, I feel like there's more mass shootings now than there ever have been. And I, yeah, I don't have, do. I don't have the statistics to, to, to back it up. Right. 
It certainly feels that way. I mean, right. I remember when Columbine happened and then it felt like years went by. Right. And that's the thing is like happened, right? Columbine happened and everybody was like, how did this happen? Yeah. Right. Mass mm-hmm. shootings happen today and everybody's like, wow, that's awful. Not surprised, but that's awful. No, and I think there's so I think there are a couple of factors. I mean, and I don't I don't have the I I certainly don't think I have it all figured out, but I think there are a couple of things that contribute. I think one is as technology has emerged, I think it's easier to feel more and more and more disconnected from other people, mm-hmm. right? And I think which is so ironic. With, yeah, because like I think globalization that, shrinks the world, and yet this is. I know, I know. No, you're right, and I think with technology the way it is now, I think there's this level of anonymity and de-individuation that can happen online that allows for continued disconnection, but also allows for people to become truly cruel um, because you're behind the screen, right? Yeah. You're you're not face to face. So I, I think there's this level of disconnection that people are feeling. I think there's this level of um, self-doubt, low self-worth, issues around self-esteem that people are, are, are feeling that are not being tempered um, in the ways that maybe it used to. And I think the other thing is, you know, Men and women, I'm not trying to gender this, but in some ways I think I have to. I think men and women both suffer, both struggle, both deal with trauma, mental health conditions equally, right? But the way in which women and men are socialized to handle those things are completely different, right? Yeah. Women have more room to feel and express. There's a reason why more women go to therapy than men. There's a reason why most therapists are women than men, right? Like we're socialized for this, for us to be more emotional and to feel and express and that's okay. Um, And from the standpoint of like significant mental health issues, you know, from a point of suicide attempts, women don't jump to shooting themselves or hanging themselves, right? They use less lethal means. For men, however, so many men are still being socialized with this view of of masculinity that entails Mm -hmm. limiting whether or not you can feel sadness, limiting emotional expression, and essentially what you're allowed to feel is anger, rage, or joy. But even joy needs to be tempered. Um, Yeah, I mean, playing baseball... Right, you get hit by a pitch, and the first thing everyone yells is, "Don't rub it." Like you're in pain, and just don't touch it. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how how many times have young men been told, "Like boys, don't cry. Mm-hmm. Suck it up. Stop crying." Yeah. Right? Like, so we ha- we've be a man. developed. Yeah, we've developed this society where being a man means don't feel sadness, don't feel shame. Don't feel guilt. Don't feel you know whatever the other emotion is. Yeah. But what we but 
And what you have that compounds it is you have less men going to college than ever before, more men than women dropping out of high school. So we're having more men who are falling behind the curve, more financial instability, less social connection. On top of that, you're not allowed to feel your emotions to their full expression. So we have young men who are filled with rage, filled with shame, don't know what to do about it, and are using AR-15s. Right. So it's, yeah. it's in some ways, I almost say, regardless of whether there's depression or anxiety, I don't know. And, and again, I don't have the answer. I don't know if this is just a mental health crisis. I think we have like a much larger issue on our hands where we're raising men who think it's okay to solve their problems by hurting other people. It's a societal issue. It's not necessarily a mental health issue. Yeah, I think it's one of the bigger crises we have in our country, right? It's like, how are we raising our men? I mean, this can be, I can go off on a tangent, but like, you still have like, violence against women, primarily perpetrated against men, right? Like, we are raising men who think it's okay to take out their own feelings, their own feelings of shame, self-doubt, criticism, need for power onto other people. And it's creating a significant crisis. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I have so many questions on on this <laughs> on this particular topic. Yeah. But so I have I'm, I have no statistics to back up yeah. anything I'm about to say, and that is okay. just a a prerequisite that I'm just throwing out there. Yeah. Right. Because this is just something I, I would love to see the statistics. Yeah. And it, it involves the media. Okay. Okay. So I remember mm-hmm. when streaking at a major sporting event was a thing. Right? You could not turn on a major sporting event without seeing some guy get chased around the field buck mm-hmm. naked. Mm-hmm. Right. Or just running onto the field. Right. Mm-hmm. People looking for their 15 minutes of fame. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting way to do it. Yeah. Well, you know, at some point years ago, there was like a collective decision by all the broadcasters of these games that if someone ever gets onto the field, we will never show them. Right. We're not going to show them. We're not going to give them the satisfaction of getting their 15 minutes of fame this way. Mm-hmm. And I would put money on that statistic dropping the number of people who run out onto the field naked or fully clothed. I yeah. I believe in my heart of hearts that it has been reduced significantly by that decision. Yeah. Okay. And so, with that in mind, I also have always believed, since I could formulate this thought in my head, that showing these particular people, right, that go out and they commit this mass shooting and they have the manifestos and they they go through all of this um, pomp and circumstance, for lack of a better phrase, 
and then commit this act, right? And then the news gets a hold of it and their face is plastered everywhere. Their manifesto is released, right? Like for the next three days, someone who believed that they didn't matter finally matters and they had to kill a bunch of people and themselves in order to achieve it. That's And again, I am not a um, professional. I'm not a mental health professional by any means. That's why you're here. But it, it seems to me that if they would just, the, they being the media, would cut back, right? This is the, the public has the right to know who committed this crime. Right. If if John Smith went out and killed a bunch of people, the world has a right to know that it was John Smith. Mm-hmm. Do we need the manifesto? You know what I mean? Like, can it just I be do. said this person had a manifesto, but it, yeah. we're not going to give him the satisfaction of making it important? Would do you think right. that that would reduce this? Because is it is it? And and I feel bad because it seems like it's it sounds callous, and I'm not trying to be. But obviously, there's mental health issues. But would it weed out the people just seeking attention, even though they have meant like you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I can't find a better way to phrase it. I hear you. I, I don't know. I will say this. Something, so in, in my field, if you were a client and you came into my office, one of the things that I'm going to do in my initial intake assessment is to assess your risk factors for potentially hurting yourself or someone else. Mm -hmm. And one of the risk factors that we know is if you know someone who has died by suicide, you are at greater risk to potentially attempt suicide. Now, there are many other factors that would play into that actually happening. And you also have to look at what are protective factors right? All all of that kind of comes together to create, you know, as a clinician, what I would deem, you know, how safe or at risk this person may be. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that the more we see, or the more that we see vulnerable, the more vulnerable populations or people see that this is a way of handling their feelings, or their anger, or whatever it may be that's driving them, it makes it a more viable solution, right? Like, that's the reason why knowing someone who died by suicide puts you at greater risk. It's because you know it's a viable option. And I feel like now you're introducing a mass of people to someone who died by suicide, even if it was suicide by cop if you Mm -hmm. will, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're introducing these people and and almost creating a martyr and then releasing a a manifesto that that 
this person who is feeling these feelings, all of a sudden now they have a document going, well, I can get behind this. Mm-hmm. And instead of having an outlet, a different outlet that might have been, well, that would definitely have been a better route to take, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, well, I don't always know. I'll say, let me, I should say this before I say what I was going to say. I don't watch the news anymore. I I don't watch it. And I instruct my clients not to watch it, quite frankly, because it is inundating and vicarious trauma is a real thing, right? Mm -hmm. The more you, you, you don't have to have experienced trauma to feel trauma symptoms, right? And the kinds of videos that you can get online now are just watching them in and of themselves can oh, yeah. feel traumatic, right? Absolutely. So I have to take a step back from it. So I may not be the best person to have this conversation with in the sense that it's not like I'm watching all of the news channels and like seeing what's biased, what's not, right? But it's but not so much biased say, as as just every news it's channel. It's sensationalized. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. What I agree, what I, I, I feel is true is we've reached a point where it's how do we up the ante, right? The news stories that make prime time are not like, look at this puppy that saved this little boy from a well. It's like right. this mass shooting and this horrific thing and that horrific thing. Look at right. this video and these gra- like graphic images and we're going to yeah. play it every hour. Asian hour. man walking on the street gets hit in the head with a ball peen hammer. Yeah, it's and that's all you're seeing. It's And that's, I mean, and what I'll also say is, and I think this is a bigger issue too, if you look at the kind of, television shows that were on in the 50s or in the 80s versus what's on now you've seen a very significant uptick in the amount of violence mm-hmm. that is being shown on television across the board yep so as a like culturally we're being habituated to this level of violence right it, it did a mass shooting happen today i don't know it could have and you yes, know what I'm actually. Gonna, did one? Yes. Um, I don't know. Let's I, see. And be, I'm so habitual. Michigan, to it. Saginaw. Yes. One killed, four injured. You know what I should be feeling right now is like complete and utter heartbreak. That's horrific. But I feel com- I com- I feel completely numb to it, and that and that doesn't mean I don't care. It's horrific. We're desensitized as a society. Exactly. To the point where, oh, another mass shooting changed the channel Mm -hmm. because it's the only way to navigate it. But then at the same time, we sit in front of the TV and we watch The Handmaid's Tale or Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones. And it's just violence. Yeah. Constantly. And sex and violence. That's all that sells. And that becomes a problem. Yeah. Right. Because then you hear these mass shootings happening and you can still go about your day right the way that we felt about i remember when columbine happened we were young very and it was what 95 97 i think so 
I think so. I, I, don't I remember feeling, I, I don't either, but it's, <laughs> it's, I remember feeling like shock and fear and upset and like, why? How, how could that could happen? happen to, right, yep. right. And now it's like another one happened today. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go to the grocery yeah. store now. Yeah. And again, it's not that I, I don't say that lightly. It's not that those lives didn't matter. It's that when you hear it every day, you acclimate that to being the the new normal, yeah. right? The new normal is that we have mass shootings, and that is there's a significant it's, problem. It's awful and crisis if that's where we are at. There as was a community. there was an incident in East Haven a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I think only one person was actually injured, so it doesn't qualify as a mass shooting. However, the person opened fire on a group of people just outside in the green, if you will, in uh, in East Haven or Brantford. I think it was Brantford, Connecticut. And I have friends that live out there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, like, first I heard active shooter, Brantford, Connecticut. I texted everybody. You guys Okay. Is nobody near this? Like, and everybody's like, yeah, no, nobody's near that. Cool. And then just went back to, eh, and now it's just an active shooter. Let's see what happens. Well, not and that's, and that's like the closest. And it's, it's like just saying it out loud makes me feel shitty because that's the closest I came to caring because I knew a couple people that could be on an off day in that area. But, but now that they're not, the meh. That, that's the piece of it, right? Like we, there is this level of habituation and at the same time, there's this level of, it's not that we're dehumanizing other people. That's not what it is, but it's, I think for our own self-protection, it's like if it's not within my immediate circle, we have a capacity. I can't, I can't deal. Yeah. Because how do you mourn every, every day, day? Every day. It, we've we've hit capacity, and that's yeah, the thing. Is like if you're if you're living in Connecticut and something happens out in Colorado, do you care? Yes. If you're not a sociopath, I feel like you would still care. But at the same time, does it affect you? Probably not anymore. Yeah. Because you can't let it because if it did, every one of them would. Yeah. I mean, and, I, I, and I'll be honest. I got affected a little bit when I looked at that um, graph that I downloaded, right? Like the, all the mass shootings that happened in 2021. When I saw the final tally, at that point, I was like, Jesus Christ. Like I went back to this is awful as opposed to just, Oh good. Another one's happening. This sucks. Like it, it was that extra step because, and, and it was just because of the sheer number. Number. I know. I think the cycle too, that we're in, which isn't helpful is it is awful. It is horrific. And when we sit with it, I think it's so easy to get overwhelmed what do I do? Yeah. How do I stop it? What can I do to make a difference? I don't know, right? And then the overwhelm, the sadness, the grief. 
So then we, we dissociate, we numb out, we just say, if it's not in, again, not con- maybe not consciously, but if it's not affecting me personally, I, I can't deal, yeah. right? But then we become complacent and then nothing changes because we don't do anything about right. it. Right, because we've become numb, it's not as yeah. it's not as important to us to fix it. Right, and and I say this, I think, out loud for me as well, not as an accusation to, to the rest of the world, but at what point, like, that's not good enough anymore, right? I didn't know that number, you know, that since 2021, it's been 175, I think you said. Over, if over that's, 175. Yeah, if that's where we're at, like, we need to do something, like, collectively we need to do something that's not okay, yeah. right? And I don't have the answer to what that looks like. Right? I know so many people are going towards gun control, mental health reform. I think there are a lot of different ways to tackle this problem. It's a complex problem that's not going to have a simple right. solution. But it's not going to get better if we sit around and we don't do anything. And we can say the same thing for the systemic racism that's happening in this country and the racial injustice that's happening, yeah. right? We can't just sit around and watch it happen and post our Instagram that we're sad, right? Like that's <laughs> not enough anymore. Right. Well, so let's actually, you bring up a good point. So let's, let's talk about that for a second. Gun reform. And this is it. We're going to try and stay uh, as far out of politics as we can. Okay. However, gun reform is a massive political issue. Yeah. So, in your opinion, as a mental health professional, mm-hmm. do you believe that a psychological evaluation should be standard across the board in this country in order to obtain a pistol slash weapons permit? It, do you think making it standard would help? I don't know. Okay. Um, that may that may not have been. No, 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 no. But that's that's okay. Because and I want because I want to dive but, into it, right? So yeah, because that's a very broad question, right? So to yeah. just ask that question and to get an I don't know, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So let's so, let's be a little more specific, right? Yeah. Let me say this. Let me say two things. One, whatever gun reform we put in place, do I still think there are going to be guns on the black market that people can get if they really want to? Yes. Yeah. You're not going to take guns out of the hands of people who really want to get their hands on a weapon. They're just going to find another way, right? I I truly believe that. Do I think stricter policy around who can get a firearm, how many firearms people can possess, the types of firearms people can have would be beneficial? Yes. Um, You know, there are many people in parts of this country that have rifles and they actively use them to go hunting. I think they have a right to own a weapon. I'm not trying to 
Right, and, and, and we're not, and I'm not either. Right, I'm not right. saying no one should have guns. I'm not saying take all the guns away. But I don't think we away. need semi-automatic weapons. On or the fully street, automatic. Right? Like, we don't need... No, we don't need them. Now, what gets complicated around, like, psyche valves is psyche valves can mean many different things, right? right? Like, you can do a full neuropsych evaluation, or you can do a psychiatric evaluation with, with psych testing, that's going to look very different. And they're also very in-depth, right? So, and, and also what are we testing for, right? Are we going to be testing for psychosis, general anxiety, bipolar disorder? Right. Like It's such a broad, I know, it was such a broad right? question. Like, sociopathy, like personality disorders, right? So, most people who are going to commit mass shootings, you know, again, I, I don't study mass shootings, so, you know, I might be off here a little bit, but from my knowledge, most people who commit mass shootings are experiencing significant amount of rage, are experiencing a significant amount of uh, lack of empathy for other people, and are over... Um, Ego, overly egocentric, right? They're mm-hmm. hyper-focused on their own suffering and not so much on the impact their actions are going to have on other people. Now, in order to ascertain whether or not you or I or Joe Schmo up the street is going to have that kind of personality structure or could potentially reach that, that characteristic or, or mental state, you're going to have to do a pretty significant test battery, which is going to include, you know, the MMPI or, you know, a lot of the MMPI, I think is like 400 questions. And for, Um, for people listening, what is an MMPI? So an MMPI is essentially this really detailed psychological test that is supposed to help uncover what your personality structure is going to be. Okay. Um, and within the MMPI, they work in, um, what's the word? They work in sort of these, um, they have a test built so that it's hard to lie. And the test okay. knows if you're, if you lie, right? So they ask, the same anyways i don't want to get into it too much because i don't want to give it give it away um but then you have things like the warshock the ink block test Mm -hmm. um there are a lot of tests that you can give to get at the heart of someone's personality and personality structure um but in a lot of ways that's also just capturing that person in the moment of the test right right so if you apply to get a firearm and we do this full test battery and psych evaluation and you're deemed psychologically fit to carry a firearm well if after you get said firearm you experience the death of a child or you lose your job or something awful happens or whatever it may be right how could that potentially shift how you're now going to be engaging with yourself, with the world and with other people. And how is that going to shift your view of self and world and the other people? So I guess what kind of, what kind of 
pressure and um, liability would it then put on the the mental health professional, right? Mm-hmm. Like what mental health professional is going to want to touch that with a 40-foot pole when I've cleared this person? Yes, you know what? I, I believe that you are fit to carry a, a firearm and that person then goes out and shoots a bunch of people and all those people's families are now in a civil case against this mental health professional and potentially even a criminal case against this yeah. mental health professional for, for malpractice so, or whatever else. Like, is yeah, anybody so, going to want to touch that? I would not put my job on the line for that. So here's an interesting point you bring up. Most police officers in this country have to go through a psychological evaluation before they are cleared to go to the police academy. How's that working out? <laughs> and listen, I, I, I don't know if you remember, my dad's a cop. He, he was a cop for 35 years in Stanford, so I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't say that in an attempt to shit on the police. No, but at the you same know, time, but, what you were like, saying, we, your point, is, going back to the point that you just made, situations change. You may have been mentally fit to be a police officer before you entered the academy and then you can experience on-job trauma of of many different levels and now all of a sudden you are not necessarily mentally fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, I, I, I've never done one of those evaluations so I can't say what goes into it. But I, I also question, like, are we doing a good enough job with the evaluations? And also, are there some characteristics we look for in, this is gearing us towards another topic, but are there certain characteristics we look for or say would make a good cop that potentially sets that individual up for being in a situation where they're now abusing their power? So that's actually because this is a giant can of worms. And I think Mm -hmm. the biggest problem is, is that no one is truly willing to put themselves out there to even just pick something. Let's see if something works. You know what I mean? Like whatever it might be. And I think that's ultimately what the problem is, and that's that's where the politics kind of comes into it, right? Because nobody wants to upset their constituents, and nobody wants to upset their base, because that's the way they stay in power, and and you know yada yada yada, and that's how the system works, and that it is what it is. But moving to the police side of this, right? We've been hearing a lot because of. Everything from before and after and, you know, before and after George Floyd, right? We've been hearing so much about how police officers are not social workers, right? They're not equipped with the skill set to handle some of these calls that they go on when they encounter a mentally ill individual in particular, 
but but just in general, right? That like their training is focused on a very specific set of skills that they're going to need to uphold the law. And that's fine. But they're not social workers. Right? And so uh, me personally and, and this isn't really a question, this is just I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I personally think that every precinct, Mm -hmm. big or small, should have a social worker of some sort. So in major cities like Chicago or New York or whatever the case may be, I think you should have enough social staff, social worker staff, in those precincts that any call that requires it, there's always somebody on. Mm -hmm. At least one person on. Right. And I think that every precinct should at least have one social worker. So whether it's the local county sheriff or New York City, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There should be enough to handle the volume of mm-hmm. these types of calls. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a case by case basis. Right. Yeah. But, and I think in, in many, I don't want to speak for all, but, you know, I know here in Massachusetts, at least there are a lot of communities that are already doing that and have been doing it. So there's, I I think the acronym is CCIT, which I think stands for community crisis intervention team. And there are, it involves, it's like a monthly meeting. um, But, you know, touch points happen outside of this meeting where police, fire and local mental health organizations all come together to talk about, certain members of the community that they're seeing frequently move through all mm-hmm. of these organizations, right? And and cops, But I'm not even saying that. I'm saying this is not yeah. a police officer. Like this isn't even a police no, officer no. that goes through the uh, training to have social oh, yeah, work yeah. training. I'm talking about yeah, no, putting active, a social worker. Social workers. Yes. Yes, they have Mental them. health professionals. Yeah, they have them and it helps. It makes a difference. Yeah. and It makes a big difference. And I feel like and now we're now we're just going to dive into politics. Um, there's a way to do it. Nobody wants to do it, but there's a way to do it, right? The same way that every teacher in this country could be earning much more than they do, right? So, and I've done I've done this before, and I this was not something that I actually plan on talking about. So I'm doing this straight off the cuff. So I may edit this out. I may not. I don't know. Um, okay. <laughs> meaning like what I'm a, all the searching I'm about to do. Yeah. Dead air. It's always good for a podcast. <laughs> okay. So there are. This is why I use Google and not Bing. 
What I don't think I've even heard of Bing. It's because it's garbage. But I had something affected my computer where Google will like not come up. Oh, good. Like it's not it's not automatic when I just like open a tab and it's Google. My computer won't let me do it. Fantastic. Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> there are 3.3 million teachers mm-hmm. in the United States. The average, according to the Department of Education's National Center for Education Statistics, the average mm-hmm. salary of a public school teacher in 2018 to 2019 was 61730 I feel like that's high. But really? I feel like that's that is a high number. I feel like they're earning less. Yeah. Oh that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying no, I sorry. Know. That's not more than what they should be earning. I feel like <laughs> they're actually earning less than that. Yeah. Let me yeah. get that right out in the open. Yeah. Because what I'm about to do is much more beneficial for the teachers. Right? So now if you take three, three, zero, 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 that's enough zeros. Yes. 3.3 million times 20,000 mm-hmm. is 66 billion. Okay. $66 billion would give every teacher in this country an additional $20,000 a year, which would bring their average salary up to $81,730. We could do that as a country and still be spending more than the next 10 countries combined on our military if we just took that money out of the military budget that our country spends and just gave it to every state to pay the teachers. Public school teachers, mm-hmm. right? So think about that for a second. If if there were 3.3 million social workers working for precincts, right? Call it three, right? So do that again and say that their average salary is 60000 Mm-hmm. That is $198 billion, mm-hmm. right? That's still, right? So $198 billion plus 66, is that enough zeros? That's $264 billion. That's about what our increase was budget year over year mm-hmm. for defense. Yeah. That doesn't solve, but that handles two major problems in this country. Social workers that are needed in police precincts and teachers who are vastly underpaid for what they're doing in public schools. Yeah. Right? And I know that that is not necessarily a psychology question, but it it points out, and, and granted, I, I'm not so naive that I don't understand that you can't just take that money from there and put it in right. to the states or whatever, blah, blah, blah. The point that I'm making is is there are ways 
to help alleviate the mental health crises in our country, right? Mm-hmm. Better pay for teachers means better teachers. Mm-hmm. Better teachers, and not across the board, but more people who might be really want to be a teacher but go, yeah. man, I need to make more money than that. And then they yeah. never get uh-huh. into that field and they can't help children from a young age develop in a better way. Right. And that's, and what you're starting to talk about now is access to care, right. And access to resources, right. Which is disproportionately, you know, offered to, to few and not yeah. offered to many. Right. I mean, even just right. like COVID looking at like who's been significantly impacted by COVID and who has it and disproportionately people of color, right? And I mean, yeah, people of color and people who are, um, and I mean, it, it's, it, it ends up being mostly the same proportion, but people who don't have ready access to internet or utilities or, you know, certain things that y- you needed just to maintain getting an education over the past year. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, just think about, I mean, we had, there are a number of examples. I mean, just thinking about how many people in this country can't get a vaccine because they don't have transportation to get there. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Like that, should, that should not be an issue, right? And, and that, that's things that, that you know, when I when I went to go get my vaccine, I never questioned like, how am I going to get there? I just got in my car and I drove, right? Yep. When we think about access to care, it's not just like, are there enough teachers or are there enough social workers? It's everything else around that, right? How like transportation needs, food, like yeah. it, there's so much stuff that when you live in a place of privilege, you don't have to think about, right? And I think that's also part of the problem. So many people who are making the choices around how this country is going to be led are coming from a place of privilege. Yeah. And not, not thinking not enough, about... Not enough people are... Because, I mean, there are plenty of people in Congress and plenty of of senators that either started or are still living in these areas of poverty or disproportionately people of color mm-hmm. that aren't getting the resources that they should be getting. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. And that's that it. it I, I just feel as though it's fixable and it's, it's now just semantics. Yeah, well, I think it's fixable. I think it's also who's fighting for the change, right? Like, if you have, the only people standing up to fight are the people who don't have enough. And the people who have what they need are sitting back and watching the fight take place. Nothing's going to change, right? Um, I, I think that's, Part of the problem is it's easy to sit back when you come from a place of privilege 
and say, well, that's not my fight or well, I'm doing what I can or I don't know what to do or to just yeah. or to just turn off the TV, right? And not think about it. But I think to your point, I think there are solutions, but if there's not enough people and enough variety of people and enough people in a privileged position standing up and saying, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to try, then how do we expect change to happen? Yeah. That's very well said. Um, you're welcome. All right. So let's take a hard left okay. and, and get to the last topic. That'll probably be another hour and a okay. half. That we've been talking. It can't be because I have to go to bed. <laughs> I'm turning. I'm turning someone else's shoes into the Joe Rogan podcast, and it's it's literally just going to be three hours of talking. Um, four hours nonstop. Yeah. All right. So the last thing I want to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very broad topic, so we'll we'll try. I'll tr- <laughs> I will try and keep us on task. Okay. Social media. I know. Well, this is a topic I could go off on, so we're going to have to just like... Well, we may just make this a two-part episode then. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because you're not going to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Staying awake. Yep. Get some coffee. Here we go. Social media and its effects on all generations. And I want to start with the kids. So there are... Plenty of studies that have been done mm-hmm. on just social media and its negative effects on children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have um, an article by Northrop Grumman, mm-hmm. and the the who is that or what is that? Um, they are a group. I don't know. I, it's the first article that I found. <laughs> So this is. <laughs> so we don't know if it's a reputable. Source. It is. Okay. It is. Okay. <laughs> because they are using reputable sources. Okay. Okay. Throw it at me. Yes. So, um, a University of Pennsylvania study examined how mm-hmm. social media causes FOMO or the fear of missing out. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And that essentially. The correlation they have there is how FOMO leads to um, erratic behavior or impulsivity. Yes, thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. That's why you're the professional. Um, another article by Harvard University. Reputable. Yeah, a little bit, right? <laughs> um, studying the effects on social media and the brain. Mm-hmm. And. Um, Finding the positive interactions such as a like on Instagram or on Twitter triggers the same kind of chemical reaction that is caused by gambling or recreational drugs. Mm -hmm. And that's the big thing that I wanted to focus on. Obviously, there are a million things that surround social media. And, And we can go and I know we can go on for quite some time. On all of those. But I'd like to start with this very specific thing. Mm-hmm. Getting a like is like shooting heroin. Yeah. 
the same dopamine release happens in both. Mm-hmm. Right? So how is it okay? How is that okay? Yeah. And, and how is it okay that Instagram wants to launch Instagram for kids? Yeah. It's, I think short answer is it's not okay, right? But you have these companies that have essentially found a way to dictate how we live our lives and how we feel about ourselves, right? Because, I mean, this is also, it corresponds, the birth of social media correlates directly to cyberbullying, right? Like, yeah. and I'm not talking about Facebook. I'm talking about, like, AOL Instant Messenger. Which came out when we were in sixth grade. That's beside the point entirely. But thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <awesome. laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, is that if you talk to someone in high school right now, they would have no idea what AOL Instant Messenger even was. No. Because it does, it has come and gone in the spectrum of social media. Yeah. But, like, you can go online and either, with the click of a button, make someone feel like they are high on drugs or make someone feel like they are worthless Mm -hmm. just by typing a few words. And like that baffles me. It boggles my mind that it, and, and like, I don't like the idea of control or government oversight so much so in social media, if you will. Yeah. But like these studies exist, right? And I feel like if nothing else, mm-hmm. every parent should be aware of it. And then yeah, make I the mean, decisions you want to make as a parent, right? You know, you're a parent, parent your kid. But like you should know. But how many parents are doing it? So we're going to get into that. Because that's the other Sorry, problem. Jumping ahead. The parents are yeah. as high as the kids. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I So I have been reading this book called um, Daring Greatly. It's by Brene Brown. Highly recommend. Um, have you heard of Brene Brown? I have not. But we're. Oh I'm going to establish after this episode, we're going to establish Leah's book club. Um, and yeah. I just want to make you the next Oprah. That's what we're going to do. We're yeah. just going to, let's do it. Yes. Let's do it. I, I don't think I'll ever be the next Oprah, but we can try. We can I mean, try. Why the hell not? All let's we got to do, right? do is get you really rich and start giving away <laughs> Buicks. And I feel like we're halfway there. You get a car. You That's get right. Car. That's what I'm saying. You um, give a couple hundred people a car and you're halfway to being Oprah. I, okay. I mean, let's do it. Um, so Brene Brown, read it. Okay. Um, so her book is called Daring Greatly. She's got a TED. She has one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. Okay. And it's about shame and vulnerability. And in her book, Daring Greatly, what she talks about is this idea that what has been created in America is this shame prone culture. And she's not saying that our culture is creating shame but that 
there are enough people in our culture, in our country, that feel shame that it's beginning to dictate culture. Okay. And what she goes into talking about is how when we experience these levels of shame, we it impacts our ability to be vulnerable with ourselves and with other people. And the reason I bring that up is because we live in an environment now where we are putting these messages, these videos, these photos out onto social media that we can doctor to mm-hmm. the point where we don't look like ourselves, right? Or that, just our other people. Or, yeah, our other people completely, right? We we have to put this this facade forward to the world, and then we are waiting back the response from other people. And if the response is good, we're worthy. And if the response is bad, we are not. And with social media, with the consumer culture that we're in, the other thing that we're prone to being in is this constant state of not being enough or not having enough, Mm -hmm. right? And we constantly, I think even in our language, talk about not having or not being enough, right? I mean, you can, someone asks you, how'd you sleep last night? Oh, I didn't get enough sleep or yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have enough time to I, do this or that. I don't know that. when the last time I got enough sleep was. Right? I mean, we think about, do I have enough clothes to wear for summer? Do I right. need to get more of this, less of that, right? It's constantly enough. And it ends up creating this. I think perseveration and maybe even obsession on am I enough? Do I have enough? Do other people view me as enough? Am I okay? Am I accepted? Am I lovable? Right. Am I worth am I worth it's it? It's like a constant and, culture of keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. But it but it's a moving target. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So you finally feel like maybe you're getting there and then suddenly the target shifts. Well, and, and now I you're feel back like, at square one. I feel like again, like now we're because we're on the the topic of social media, right? So let's talk about Instagram influencers, right? People that actually are telling you what's or or saying that they know what is cool, what you need mm-hmm. to have, the things that you should be doing or should be getting, or you know whatever the case may be. And I feel like the. the the problem is, I mean, it's there's so many problems, but like how many people have the net worth of Kim Kardashian that are under the age of 18? I'm going to go with none. And yet those same children are actively pursuing trying to do and be and get everything that people like her have. And I'm not saying that Kim Kardashian is a good or bad person one way or the other. I just use her because she's one of the most famous influencers on social media. Mm-hmm. But the the point is, is that 
people are going out there and and saying, you know, I'm on a beach in Miami or I'm in Cancun or I'm doing this with these people in this place. And now people have to strive to be that or better. Right. And I, I agree with you. And I, I think the other, the other side of that, which is, I think equally as problematic is your, what we're seeing posted is glorified versions of life. Right. Right. It's not reality. It's not everyday life. Um, No. And it, and life is, filled with love and excitement and joy, but it's also filled with sadness and worry and pain and suffering. They coexist, right? But what we see on Instagram is just the good, right? We see the relationship on a good day. We see the pregnancy announcement, but not the five miscarriages that happened before that. We see the bikini pics that are doctored and photoshopped, right? We see all of these things, but none of the context and nothing that makes it, 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 it's not an accurate depiction of life, right? But suddenly that's how you're viewing it. And if we're talking about children, they don't have, even young adults and adolescents, you know, brains are still developing, like they don't have the capacity to recognize that when things get hard, they get better. That's why adolescents are right. at such higher risk of mental health issues and suicide attempts, right? Because they don't have, they're naturally egocentric. They don't have the capacity to recognize things can get better. What I'm feeling right now is not going to be right. like this forever. Because they don't have life experience. They're, right. they're but children. When you go on to, right. And when you go onto social media and you just see, good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing. Now suddenly it skews the representation. Everyone else is happy and I'm depressed. Everyone else is getting what they want and I'm not, right? right? That does not help, one, create a sense of connection, create a sense of autonomy over one's life, nor does it help promote resiliency or an accurate representation of what life is going to be like. Or how about even like, okay, so it's good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing. I post a good thing. My good thing got 25 likes. Your good thing got 137 likes. Why is your good thing? So even my best thing isn't good enough. Like, and and what effect mentally is now is that going to have? Mm-hmm. Because now, well, not only are you seeing good thing, good thing, and why am I sad if everybody else is happy? What's wrong with me if everybody else is good? But how about what's wrong with me if my best thing isn't good enough to impress anybody mm-hmm. when I'm seeing all these other people's good things are? Well, and I... Right. You're right. That's the dynamic. And I I think what people are not connecting with, and this is something I often talk about, especially with some of my clients who are, you know, early 20s and younger, is there's this assumption that everyone else you're seeing on the screen is happy. Right. Right. 
but how can you be happy if you can't actively engage in your life, right? How I, I can't tell you how many times my husband and I will go out to dinner or go walk downtown or walk the dog or go on a vacation. And we're surrounded by people who are on their phone, taking pictures of their food in front of the statue of their dog, posing here, posing there, right? So pictures on the beach. and Boyfriends of Instagram. Right? Like, I get it. I want good pictures too, but I want the experience more. Right. And that's always been my thing. And my, my wife and I are the same as you and your husband. I would rather live the experience and not live it through a lens. Right. Like I can't understand people that go to concerts and just hold their phone up for the entire concert and like put stuff on Snapchat or Instagram. Like how about just watch the concert? Well, and that's the thing. You're not in the moment, right? And you can't experience genuine joy and contentment and happiness if you're not allowing yourself to live in the moment. Right. And I think we do ourselves as a species a disservice by focusing so much time flaunting these small parts of our lives on social media because it makes me really question how much of your life are you neglecting? Yeah. Right. And I think in addition to that, Suddenly your life becomes so focused on how do I look, post, appear to be X, Y, and Z way instead of just being who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Which, you know, when I when I talk to some of my clients, I, I think that this is sort of the dialogue we have where I ask, how do you know those people that you're scrolling and looking at and becoming envious of? How do you know that they're happy? How many pictures did they take before they got this one? What was happening before or after, right? We don't, I don't know. We don't know. You're starting to see people post like before and after pictures or Mm -hmm. people posting more about like their mental health struggles or their struggles with miscarriages or infertility or mental health, right? Like you're starting to see all these things come out more, but you can still see a majority of what's being posted on social media is just like the snippets of life that feel really good, really exciting, really positive. Yeah. And there's so much more to life than that, but people aren't taking that in and they're just creating this dichotomy. They have more. I have less. They're prettier. I'm not. They're thinner. I'm not. They're more successful. I'm not. Yeah. Absolutely. it's, It's significantly impacting self-esteem, self-worth, anxiety, depression, loneliness. I mean, people feel lonelier than they ever had. And I think in part it's because we don't sit with ourselves. Anytime we have time to be alone, we just pick up the phone. We're not connecting with our emotions, what we need, what we want, our our goals, our dreams, our hopes. Like, yeah. We're just, we're dissociating. We're just distracting ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I feel like, right, like especially with 
the younger kids. Like how how can you speak to? Because I don't know if this is this is an area of of expertise for you, but addiction in young adults or young children, mm-hmm. right? Are they generally more prone to addiction? No, so addiction is not my thing. Right. And again, like I don't I don't have the answer. But, I was just it's just yeah. a question. Because I think I what I will say is this. Kids are sponges. And I don't work with kids, but I I'm a psychologist. I studied some stuff about, <laughs> you know, psychology and kids and I've been around a lot of kids. Right. And I'm sure, you know, you you've seen this too. You have a son. Yeah. Kids focus in, right? Like, I think any parent will say, like, we put on Frozen, and if I have to listen to Let It Go one more time, I'm going to lose it, right? I mean, that's a bad analogy for me because I've seen that movie like 25 times, but that's beside the point. It's a good show. It's a good movie. But still, like, (laughs) kids kids lock in, right? They have their favorite shirt, their favorite toy. If you wash it, they freak out. They want to wear it 50 times. Their blanket, their TV shows, and and they watch it repetitively, Right. You put a kid in front of the TV, eyes goes wide, and they're just, like, staring. So I don't know if, like, kids are inherently more addictive, but I think kids are sponges, and they will soak in what you put in front of them and what you right. allow them to be exposed to. Well, and so that's that goes to this. This is the last article that I was looking at, mm-hmm. and that's – so the Journal of Behavioral Addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, the average amount, the average user now spends approximately 136 minutes on social networking sites each and every day, which is wow. over right. two hours, over two hours, 136 mm-hmm. minutes, over two hours. And that's just on social networking sites. That's not even screen time. That's just social networking sites, okay? So that's not including like games or checking email. So according to this new study, not only Mm -hmm. does time spent on social media platforms waste countless hours of the day, that's just pandering, whatever, excessive use is also starting to affect people's decision-making abilities, making them more likely to engage in risky behaviors. Um, the lead author, Dar Meshi, I hope I pronounced that correctly, likens the connection between heavy social media use and impaired risky decision-making to the same impaired decisiveness found in the brains of people with substance use disorders. Mm. So again, going back to that addiction, right? Because you're yeah. getting that dopamine release. If you're on social media and then the social media goes away, you want more of the social media. If you're doing something, do it for the gram, right? It gets a bunch of likes. Now I got to top that. And that's when all of a sudden you're pouring hot sauce into your eye or whatever the case may be. You know what I mean? Like because people are going to watch it, people are going to like it, people are going to laugh, and you're going to feel good about yourself. And it's just – detrimental i feel like to society it is and i think you know as humans we compare ourselves to others right i think in some ways it's like basic instinct right 
one of the ways in which we get a a reading on who we are is not only for our own self or self-reflection but in the way in which we feel like others perceive us so in one way like instagram cat has capitalized on that facebook mm-hmm. has capitalized on that right so it's sort of brilliant but to your point completely detrimental because it's becoming all that people are focused on is how how does the world right and the world is now shrunk to like my followers perceive me yeah and okay so now let's talk about other generations because i feel like we can go on and on about kids it's not don't worry it's only been two hours so it's only 10 38 don't worry i I, like i i'm almost positive i have a text somewhere on here from my wife saying i'm going to bed f you yeah, I, I maybe have like fifteen more minutes in me. Okay. Okay. We'll try and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna squeeze every last minute out of you. Okay. So adults. Yeah. Um. Uh, and and all of this is just going to be generalized because if we drill down, we're going to be here for another hour. So when I say adults, we're talking about millennials. We're talking mm-hmm. about Gen X and we're talking about boomers. Okay. Okay. All of us have access to social media. Mm-hmm. And because of, of everything that's happened in the last, call it five months, or you know what, six months, seven months, whatever, from the election to the storming of the Capitol to all that stuff that's been going on, right? And even before that with um, Q, let's call it, you know, QAnon. Yeah. It seems, and again, this is not every person in these um, generational categories, but it seems as though there's a much larger conspiracy theory following now than there ever has been. And I feel like it correlates with the prevalence of social media. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and to try and, and keep it as broad as possible, Right, like, and it's not even just conspiracy theorists. So let's let's back up for a minute, right? Boomers and Gen no, X. Before, because I know, like, we're, I I want to get into that, but like, just from a social media standpoint, you get boomers and yeah. Gen X, right? I feel like so many of of those particular generational occupants. Mm-hmm utilize like social media like different generations are utilizing social media in different ways mm-hmm. right and and those older generations are not necessarily and again this is broad but they're not necessarily yeah. using it i feel like it starts out like ooh i have access to facebook let's see what the people i went to high school with 35 years ago were up to right let me mm-hmm. search for this person let me search for this person but then it's also 
like attention seeking. It seems like it seems like that's how it's utilized in the Mm -hmm. sense of like you don't post anything for months. Right. You're, you know, Facebook stalker for months and then something happens, good or bad to you. And all of a sudden, here is this long winded thing about what happened, good or bad. And now it's like, it's the same thing with the kids, right? Like, oh, you know, here's some comments, thoughts and prayers. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Whatever the situation is. And so you start with that. And then it comes, it, it brings that those all those generations to the readiness of information. And that's like, I wanted to start with this so that we can bridge it into what we were about to get into, which is the, the conspiracy theories and everything, because that's where it starts, right? You get on these, these older generations are getting on social media for a, to find out mm-hmm. what their friends from high school were up to 35, 40 years later. And all of a sudden you're bombarded with information. Mm-hmm. whether it is true or false information, whatever it is, but you're bombarded with it. And now it's like all of a sudden we have all of these conspiracy theorists that are just buying into whatever, whether it's Democratic or Republican or whatever, propaganda. And and it's, and it's that's that's where I wanted to go with this. And now I wanted to get your thoughts about all of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. In yeah, 60 I, seconds, I, go. <laughs> there's a couple things. I think you touched on one thing, which is the amount of disclosures that are happening on social media. And I think people are using social media in an attempt to... I think maybe some of it is to feel close, but I think more so it's to feel seen to feel heard so people are disclosing right but a lot disclose yeah but disclosure without boundaries is not vulnerability right it and it's not healthy right um right it 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 doesn't actually doing that doesn't actually allow you to connect with whatever it was that that difficult or hard thing that happened to you, right? It doesn't actually allow you to experience your emotions, connect with them. It's simply just, let me tell the world this awful thing that happened just to see the responses I get, Mm -hmm. right? That's not vulnerability. It's an unhealthy, unboundary disclosure. Right. Um, And I think we are seeing more and more of that and people are somehow labeling that as, well, I was vulnerable, I'm processing, I'm dealing, and it's none of those things, <laughs> which is problem number one. Right. I think the other issue, regardless of your beliefs, I think it's so easy now to get access to misinformation. Yeah. And because we have access to information so quickly, I don't think we always do our research as to how credible the resource 
that's right. providing the information is. And that's something that I've been at fault for too. Yeah. Right. Um, but something, especially in the recent years, I've been trying to be more mindful of. And I think that's problematic when you couple it with being on social media that takes everything you view, everything you post, turns it into an algorithm that then shows you more of that, Mm -hmm. right? So if you hate Trump, you're going to continue to see more things about how awful Trump is. If you don't, if you think COVID is serious and everyone should wear masks, you're going to keep seeing information about that. If you don't believe COVID's real, you're going to keep seeing information about that. And while certain, you know, Facebook, for example, tries to put up, you know, this, you know, takes down information that is incredible or, you know, post that little thing that says, you know, not all of this information can be fact checked. People are still going to believe it because they're reading it and it assimilates what they're already believing. Well, and then there's also we're not challenging people's views. Right. And there's also this thing where like, it's gotten to a point, especially with the COVID stuff and the election stuff where Facebook goes on and says, this is not factual information or independent fact checkers have, have decided that whatever's been posted here is not true. And then the people that follow this, the people that Mm -hmm. would normally have this shoved down their throat by social media before all of this happened, they take that as, well, then it must be true. If Facebook took it down, it must be true. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it perpetuates this us versus them. Right. Right. Which also doesn't help because we stop listening to each other. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, and then you see these arguments that happen in person and also via social media where we're just fighting and mm-hmm. playing dirty and we're not listening. Right. And, or, or people that just troll and just go on, like, will comment on someone else's post. Somebody posts something either political or religious or whatever, and then somebody goes on and posts something for the sole purpose of provoking. Yeah. And, like, I feel like that's a whole other issue in and of itself, right? Because Mm -hmm. the person posting the original thing, whether it was Mm -hmm. political, religious, whatever, is this the right place for it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And whether it is or it isn't, that's debatable. But then the person going on to start and provoke something has their own issue. Right. That's underlying. Like, why do you need to do this? Well, again, it comes back to what are you getting out of putting someone else down? Right. Right. And I think doing it via social media and trolling where you can create an account, get rid of it, right? There's this anonymity. Yeah. That that I think breaks down the social barrier, social norms, that it makes it easier. But then again, we come back to what is it that is perpetuating this belief that we have the right to put others down to get a laugh or to make ourselves feel better? Yeah. 
and like I was having a conversation with a couple of my friends and I think I can't remember which one of us said it but somebody one of us said like social media is the worst best or the worst good thing to mm-hmm. ever happen to the world mm-hmm. because it started off as such a great concept like just look at how facebook started off i know you could have it you could only have it if you were at a college yeah and it was used to who goes to my college right yeah. it was just enhance like it was connection. it was literally just yeah. to enhance connection between you and your fellow classmates it was a book of faces on your campus who's that girl in my english class oh that's who she is or who's the guy that lives down the hall from me what's his name again i can't remember i'd like to connect with these people because we're either in english class and i didn't get you know do you have the notes or whatever the case may be and it morphed drastically and even even when it became available to the masses, it still had that inkling of, let me just connect with the people I went to high school with. Let me yeah. see how my uncle who lives on the other side of the country is doing. Right. You know what it's I mean? Without different. having to call and talk every day, which in and of itself, yeah. why not just call and talk every day? But it... it it morphed yeah and became so bastardized over a very short time right 2005 facebook yeah right when when yeah. we were freshmen we in college yeah. when we were yeah. freshmen in college facebook was like just taken off yeah yeah and like so in 15 16 years it has been just so bastardized past what it originally started as mm-hmm. like what is there any is there anything that can be done is i guess the real question like or is it at this point from a mental health standpoint with with the damage because and and don't get me wrong I don't necessarily believe that all social media is bad and that all social media is doing is damaging. I I think that there is still some good to social media. If we didn't have social media, you and I would not be having this conversation right now. I would not, I would not be talking to someone that I've known since I was six. Yeah, no, you're right. So, you know, and, and I feel like, Although we've been talking about some very serious topics, this has yeah. still been very fun. Yeah. And I'm glad that I was able to do this. Yeah. And so like, yay, social media. So. Well, even if you think about things like GoFundMe. Yes. Right? Right. Right. Like it, it's definitely not. It's not. It's not all, all bad. Bad. But I, I. I think my question is. At this point, because of what social media has become, mm-hmm. there's no, in in my mind, I, I don't see a way to right the ship. 
right? Like I don't, no. I don't see any turning around of social media to go backwards towards what it was. So with no, that in mind, I don't think people want to turn the shit. Right. So with that in mind, what is the answer from a mental health point of view or perspective? Like, because this is going to continue. Honestly, <laughs> I think anyone who, who will have stayed with us in the, until this point, like say what I'm going to say. My listener. Is pro- your listener is probably going to be like, I'm done. Yeah, no, it's um, listener, single, single, singular. Yeah. Maybe there's going to be more. Who knows? Who knows? But honestly, I... I think, like, the world, like, everyone just needs to start meditating. (laughs) (laughs) And this is, um, uh, it's silly, but what I'm saying is we need to start connecting more with ourselves and what we really want out of our lives and if doing what we're doing on social media is giving us that. And maybe some people are going to say yes, right? Mm -hmm. Um. But I'm betting a lot of people are going to say, well, maybe not. But we're not going to do anything about it until we start taking a a step back and reflecting on the way it's limiting us because it is. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. So everyone needs to take a step back. And reflect on the way that it's impacting them, essentially. Yeah. And I recognize that insight doesn't always produce change, but it's a step towards it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. You're welcome. So very much for taking way too much time out of your day (laughs) to sit and talk to me. No, it was wonderful. (laughs) It went by very quickly. Yeah. These tend to like I look I kept yeah. looking down because I was like, well, wow, this has been fun. This is, we're having a good time. We're talking. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit, we've been doing this for two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. And it's quarter to like, nope, it's 11. Yep. Yeah. I do. I do my best <laughs> podcasting at night. <laughs> no, this has been this has been great. I, I appreciated the conversation and and all the questions you brought to the table. I appreciate you for answering them. Yeah. However naive or um, unnecessary they might be. (laughs) No, I don't think, I don't think they were either of that. They it was offered a good discussion. So it was, it was was enjoyable. I'll happy to come back and do it again. Yes. We figure out other questions. The world of (laughs) mental health is broad. (laughs) so there's always more topics exactly and you know what i'll even let you pick a new pair of shoes okay <laughs> <laughs> i like right. the ones i picked well that's beside the point entirely thank you very much and we will You're see welcome. you all next time on someone else's shoes <laughs>